Well, good morning. Uh, it is important during Lent, especially, to, to remember that third step in our movements of worship. We acknowledge God's presence. We confess our sin, which is what's happening during Lent. But we're also, also assured of God's acceptance and His forgiveness. That song we sang, you know, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. It's really important for us to remember that. We're working our way through this Lenten season. We started with the book of Lamentations. Last week, we saw this letter to the exiles written in Babylon. Uh, and, and one of the things we're coming back to is we need to be honest about our circumstances, about ourself. But we also don't need to live fearfully. We need to trust that God has plans that will not be thwarted, no matter how things appear on the surface. And the letter we looked at last week was written just after 597 B.C. I told you the, the second wave of exiles had gone to Babylon. We're picking up today in Jeremiah 35, which is six chapters later. Um, but Jeremiah actually goes back in time about 10 years in this chapter to tell a story that's happened 10 years before. It's a, a story that happened when Jehoiakim was still king, even before that second wave of exiles went to Babylon. And he tells it just before the third wave of exiles goes. So the question is, as we read the text, why, as he's progressing through the story, does he go back and tell a 10-year-old story in the middle? And the reason is, Zedekiah, who's the king now, just before the third wave, has made a... a, a proclamation, he's told all of Israel to release their slaves and their servants, which God had said every seventh year you set people free, you kind of reset the economy and, and uh, let the slaves go free. And finally, Zedekiah has decided to do that. He releases the proclamation, then he changes his mind. And so what, what Jeremiah does then is he goes back to this 10-year-old story after that happens to talk about how the people of God are not listening to what God's telling them to do. In fact, in chapter 34, verse 17, God says, you've not obeyed me. You've not proclaimed freedom to your own people. That's what he's saying to Zedekiah. So now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. So as, as this is happening, as this, this promise of freedom is taken away, Jeremiah goes back to this 10-year-old story. Now, the text in, in Jeremiah 35 was a difficult read, and I had to think carefully about who I was going to ask to read it. And I invited John Corbett to read it. He's going to read it, but I also want to tell you, John may slip in a name there that doesn't actually belong for a name he can't say. That's one of the reasons I, I want to be careful who I gave it to, because this is not an easy text to read, but John's going to read the text for us now. Jeremiah 35, 1 to 19. Jeremiah 35. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jehazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Mr. Kuhn, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine because our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. 
Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time, and there you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we, nor our wives, nor our sons or daughters have ever drunk wine, or built houses to live in, or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents, and have fully obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine, because they obey their forefathers' command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command to your forefather Jehonadab and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. Thanks, John. So what we see here is an unusual story, to say the least. And I, I have a confession to make. I have to be honest, when I was reading through Jeremiah and picking the passages I wanted to preach on, I read this story. And I said, I have to preach on that. I have no idea what that's, that's the weirdest story I've ever read. I almost called the sermon, Jeremiah invites the teetotalers to a wine tasting. Because it's just, why is this story here? Why did he go back to this story that's 10 years old? What does it, what does it say to them and what does it say to us? And, and there's a lot there, but I'm going to start by, by asking, first of all, who are the Rechabites? Who are these people that Jeremiah has invited. And the scripture tells us a couple things. Uh, when we look back in 2 Kings 10, there was a period of time when, 
when the prophets of Baal were leading the children of Israel away, there was a king, his name was Jehu, and he decided he was going to purge Israel of all these prophets of Baal. And in, in 2 Kings 10, it says, Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. And Jehu said to the ministers of Baal, Look around and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, only ministers of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and the officers, go in and kill them and let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and the officers threw the bodies out and they ordered the inner, then they entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought out the sacred stone of the temple of Baal and burned it. So Jehonadab was this one guy who helped Jehu get rid of Baal worship. If you go back even further, the Rechabites were called the Kenites, which means they were sons of Jethro, not Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. So what the, the Rechabites were actually this group of people that they weren't biological Jews. They were actually Arabs that kind of got enfolded into the Jewish people. You've got this nomadic Arab people um, faithful to Yahweh, getting rid of Baal, living alongside the Jews. And 250 years later, after Jehonadab has helped purge Baal worship from the place, they get an invite from the prophet. Actually, an invite from God through the prophet Jeremiah. Invite them, he says, to the side rooms of the temple and give them wine to drink. Now, the temple... Uh, of Solomon was quite a structure. There's a picture coming up of, of what the temple looked like. You can see these inner courtyards. The big tall thing in the middle is the Holy of Holies. But around the inner courtyards, in the second picture, you can see this. These are what they call the side rooms. The areas out, it's, it's the, uh, from the interior courtyards outside of that, that are these rooms there. Some are storehouses, some are places where the priests stay, some are, are devoted to, to different reasons. Uh, things they're using, but the descendants of Jonahab, son of Rechab, were invited into one of these side rooms for wine. And this is both a strange request and an expected response. It's a strange request for a couple of reasons. First of all, these people normally weren't in Jerusalem. There were some things that their forefather, Jehonadab, had told them to do. Number one, don't drink wine. That's going to get tricky in a minute. Number two, don't build houses. And number three, don't plant crops. He wanted them to be nomads, sheep, holders, sheep herders, uh, goat herders out in the countryside. He didn't want them to settle down. And part of that is so they wouldn't get drawn into the idolatrous worship and the way the culture was going when he, when he made those proclamations. But, but the only reason they're in the city now is that the Babylonians have conquered so much of the surrounding countryside. Really, there's only two cities left that are safe. So they've come into the city. So it's weird that they're there. And it's weird that they were offered wine because, as I said, he told them not to drink wine. And it wasn't like Jeremiah didn't know this. You see, it was an expected response. But people knew they probably wouldn't drink the wine. God knew they wouldn't drink the wine. But even then, I mean, they're in the temple. They're being told by Jeremiah the prophet that God has told them to drink wine. There are, all these people are around seeing them, and they still say no. Now, it's, it's an unusual story. But if you sit with it a while, and you start watching what's going on, and you stop trying to figure out all the details and just look at what's happening, eventually you say to God, I see what you did there. 
I see what you did there. You're, you're putting together something to do something. So, Because sometimes it's not just what gets said, it's how it gets said. And the way God sets this up has a lot to say to, to them and to, to all of us. He has a way all throughout the Bible of teaching through concrete objects and events. And this story is no different. We often forget that God is a visual and experiential teacher. He always has been. You know, when we think of teaching, our mind goes to classrooms and to books and to rows of desks. But God teaches visually and he teaches through experience all throughout the Bible, right? The children of Israel are wandering through the desert and he sets up the tabernacle and he's got rituals and colors and and smells all these things to teach them the vestments of the priests throughout the old testament you see prophets doing really weird things you see them laying on their side for for long periods of time as a as a testament to something that god is saying you see them using visual metaphors ezekiel has a vision of a valley filled with dry bones right just Visually, it's such a striking thing that, that God's using to teach. Hosea, go marry a prostitute. I've got something I want to tell the people, right? God's a visual and experiential teacher. Images and things like that speak volumes. There was, if you're following the Biola readings for Lent, there was a picture that came through this week uh, by Emmanuel Garibay. It's, it's quite a, an interesting picture. Uh, it's a clergyman. You can tell by the collar. He's looking at a fruit right, which is being enticed by this forbidden fruit, and he's got in one pocket a copy of the scriptures, and in one pocket a dove, the sign of the Spirit, the sign of peace, and then when you look closely at his coat, it's actually like scales of a serpent, and I, I mean, it, it's, what's interesting about this picture is it's got this idea that, that often church and pastors, leaders, we get distracted away, we put the, the things we're supposed to to be focused on into our pockets and we look at something deeper and, and just reflect what the serpent was doing all along. That image has just burned into my brain because images speak to us at a deeper level than just words. Even today we'll have communion, this, this metaphor, this ritual, this thing that we do that speaks to us. And what God is doing here, he's really playing out a real life parable in the Old Testament. And when you look at it, you look at the people he chooses. These second-class Jews, they don't even live in the city. They roam throughout the countryside. They work with animals. And yet these people are faithful to this tradition, this command of their forefather 250 years before. They're still faithful to it. And also look at the settings God uses it. If you, you start, there's the literary setting in the book of Jeremiah. You've got Jeremiah 33, which is a famous book for God's faithfulness. Then you've got chapter 34, where Zedekiah you know, reneges on his promise to set, set the slaves free. And then you've got this chapter, right? There's that idea of faithfulness, unfaithfulness, and now there's our story. And even the physical setting, they come into the temple, it says, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, the man of God. This, this phrase, man of God, ish Elohim in Hebrew, is one that's really used for Moses and the prophets. It's, it's an exalted title. And, and one of the reasons I think God sends them into this room, the room that's been set aside for the sons of this holy man, 
It's because what it's doing is it's establishing credibility. What happens in this room, the story that plays out in front of the sons of Haman, son of Igdalia, will be, when they tell the story, people will believe them. This is a credible family. There's some credibility there. And it says it's next to the room of the officials, the leaders of the, of the temple, the important people. So they're right beside there seeing what's going on. And then it says it's over that of, if you caught John's reading, of Mr. Kuhn, son of Shalom, the, door te- the doorkeeper, Masaya. I, I can't say that either, John. But the doorkeeper is this highly respected person. He actually has the keys to all the treasure uh, rooms of the temple. He's, he's the one that lets people in and out. And the room where this is happening is above that. It's like God saying, you know, I'm putting it in this credible place where everyone can tell the story that will be trusted. It's right where the officials can see it. And it's elevated above who you think is the most important person in the temple. He uses this setting. He's literally set up an object lesson, like a, like a kid's Sunday lesson with, with, with all this playing out to say things to us. And with that as a foundation, let's go on to interpreting the real life parable. In verses 12 to 19, Jeremiah goes on. He explains why this event was set up and what it has to say uh, to the people around it. See, the faithfulness of the Rechabites to their tradition brings into focus the unfaithfulness of the rest of the Jewish people. It's a, it's a very typical form of rhetorical flourish. The contrast brings clarity, right? Contrast brings clarity. We've seen those pictures uh, that, that you put up and they say, tell the difference. So I'm going to give you two pictures of Jake and I. Here's the first one. All right, there's Jake and I, and I'm not going to just say, well, I'm, I'm the one with the red shirt. Let's just say that. Um, there's Jake and I. Now I'm going to show you another picture that's just slightly different, and I want you to see the differences between the two pictures. Let's go on to the second one, Glenn. Did we go to the second one? Yes, we did. I don't know if we hit the second one. Did we go to the second one? Yeah, okay. So there's slight, oh, slight differences, okay? Can you see the differences between those two pictures? What about if we do it this way? What if we put them side by side? You see, it's, it's hard when you see them separately to find the differences. This is kind of a challenging one anyway, but it's, it's easier when you put them side by side. The contrast clarifies. And so in this fourth picture, we'll show what it is. You're, you're going to see in the fourth one, you know, that Tigger has an extra stripe on his chest uh, in the left picture, that there's a wrinkle in Pooh's shirt in the right picture, and above Pooh's nose on the left, he's got a little facial wrinkle, wrinkle that's not in the right one. There's these small little things that are almost impossible if you just see the pictures by themselves, but when you put them together, you can start to, to, to see the, the contrast clarifies the differences. And, and what happens is God does the exact same thing. He brings the Rechabites, these people from the countryside, right into the temple to, to, to make the contrast so clear. They're still listening to their ancestor 250 years later. In verse 14, God says, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. Even here, he says, in the temple, when the prophet is telling them to drink wine, that God wants them to drink wine, they say no. But then he continues in verse 14, but you, I've spoken to you again and again, yet you've not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. And they said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. 
Then you'll live in the land I've given you and your, and your fathers. But you've not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out their command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. See, he's used a visual story to tell them something, to expose who they are. If you're following the Lenten emails, uh, you're seeing what we're trying to do is use music and, and poetry and art and scripture all together to speak on different levels, to let those things sneak around our defenses. That little Edward Tulane story, I would agree with Jake. I'd encourage you to watch the whole thing over the, you know, you can binge watch it like our, our reviewer did, or you can watch it over a series of days, but just sit and listen to the story. Because you know what? As I hear that story of that little China bunny, I'm actually realizing how, <laughs> how self-centered and prideful I can become. It's exposing something in me. And God's playing out this real-life parable to remind them, first of all, of the importance of listening. In verse 17, he says, I spoke to them, but they didn't listen. I called to them, but they didn't answer. The point of the parable is that these people, the Rechabites, are listening, and yet God has come to them over and over and over in hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, and his people can't respond. And now it's really too late. First part of verse 17, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. They had refused to listen, and now there were consequences. Talk about that at the end today, but, but we also get to see the, the importance of the practice of obedience. See, God's calling them to obey, and he honors the faithfulness of the Rechabites. Even, you know what? Even if the things they're doing aren't even issues of right and wrong. What's interesting is the Rechabites' command from their forefather, don't plant houses, <laughs> don't, do, you know, don't, don't build houses, don't plant crops. It's the exact opposite of what God tells his people to do in Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant crops. It's not like these are, are great commandments given from Jehonadab, but they've been faithful to listen and to obey. And he says, because of this, in verse 19, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man serve me. And I, I would even say they're serving God today by telling this story, by letting this play out for us. And the point of the passage and the crazy story, I think, is that, that you could learn a lot from a Rechabite. Like most parable, the meaning keeps coming, and it, it applies across time, and there are several things for us to learn. God, the, God, God is communicating to us through this weird story where Jeremiah invites the non-drinkers to a wine tasting. The first has to do with the overall way God gets his message across. Malcolm Mulgridge has this great quote. I put it up on my wall in my office. He says, every happening, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us. And the art of life is to get the message. And I think we have to realize that God speaks in many ways. And I don't think you would ever agree with or disagree with me on that. Conceptually, we all think, oh, of course, that's, Jeff, that's not anything profound. I think we all believe that here. But I think we often miss the practical implications of what that means, that, that God is revealing himself all the time to us. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. See, God uses this situation played out in the holy man's room, in front of the leaders, above the doorkeeper's uh, residence. He uses this to speak to his people. And to connect on more than just a verbal level, have you ever just wondered why God didn't say to Jeremiah, okay, go tell him this. Hey, you know those guys, the Rechabites? They still won't drink wine. Their, their, their forefather told them not to. Why didn't God just, why didn't he write it down and have Jeremiah go read it to him? Because the story and how it plays out is so much more powerful. Think of David after his adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan comes and tells him the story about the little lamb, right? And David's angry at this, this rich man that would take the little lamb from the poor man. And then Nathan says, you are the man. See, it's the story that sneaks in behind our defenses. That's, that's these songs and these, these this pieces of art that come out with the, the, the Lenten emails, this, this poetry that engages us both verbally and emotionally, the story of a China. All those things are ways God can speak to us that, that we're not, we let our defenses down to story and image. Just this week, um, my friend Bob Randall, who many of you know, showed up in town and spent a day with Jake and I. We, uh, Bob is a paranoid schizophrenic who probably hasn't had his medicine in a few years, and he wanders through town, and there's not really anything we can do to help him because he's burned his bridges everywhere. But even in just Bob showing up and spending the day with him, Jake and I are both hearing from God. Some things we're making up on our own, I think, but, but, but just a reminder you know, of the brokenness of the world and the need to act with compassion and our, our own inability to solve the problems of the world. We're being confronted by the voice of God in Bob Randall every time he walks in the door, if we're willing to listen to it. And you may say, well, wait a second, Jeff, God speaks through the scripture. That's how, and of course he does. That's, that's the baseline. That's where we, we filter all our experiences and all our poetry and all our art and all our music and our emotional. We filter it through scripture, right? To make sure we're hearing the voice of God. But it's not just when your nose is in the book that he's speaking to you. You know, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, the writer of the Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and at various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. You know, a lot of people read the Bible, but they don't even interpret it through his son, through Jesus. There's people that interpret the Bible in ways that are totally opposite to the way Jesus lived his life. We've got to listen, filter through scripture, filter through the life of Jesus, but we've also got to realize that God is speaking all the time. And he does that because we don't just learn right here. We learn on multiple levels. We know things on multiple levels. We know things in our heart, in our experiences. You can explain to someone what it's like to be loved, but, but does you explaining it actually teach somebody what it's like to be loved? When they experience the fact of being loved, they know it in a different way. It's not your words explaining it to them that taught them. It's the experience. So we, we don't just learn by reading and thinking. We learn by feeling. I, I, I laughed when I first got engaged to Angela. I was here in Hope and my father-in-law, Lauren, uh, when your soon-to-be father-in-law tells you you're going to go up on the side of the mountain with him, you do. So we all went up one Saturday to where he used to build road with a backhoe, big, huge excavator backhoe. And he decided he was going to teach Reed and I how to run it, um, which was 
taken his life into his own hands. But what fascinated me was when I was in there with him and he would say, he would say, okay, here's the, here's the handle, here's what you're doing. And I, the goal was I was going to pick up this big rock with the bucket and move it and drop it, which was a power rush. Believe, believe me, I still remember that to this day. But what was funny was he would say, he would tell me something to do and I would do it and it was wrong. And I thought, you're not a very good operator because <laughs> you don't even know how to tell me. But you know what the funny thing was when he put his hand on the control, it was like an extension of his arm. He didn't have to think. And I realized then he knows how to run a backhoe, not here in his head and not verbally. He knows it in his gut. He knows how to move that thing as, a, as an extension of himself. And so when he tries to explain it to me, it, he can't even really do it because it's so ingrained in who he is. And sometimes God uses other ways to talk to us to reach those very, very deep levels. That's one of the things we, we do in seasons like Lent and Advent. We intentionally slow down and we try to listen in different ways, experientially, visually, so we can hear not just with our ears, but with our heart and with our gut what God's saying to us. And yes, he speaks through scripture. We evaluate it all through scripture. But it's, it, even, even reading scripture is more than just a text going into our head. It has to be deeper. And we need that because his word exposes our inconsistencies. That's what's happening in the story here. The word of the Lord played out in this interaction between Jeremiah and the Rechabites exposed the inconsistencies of the people. These guys are obeying. You guys are not. And we need that. We have these huge blind spots in our own lives. Despite the evidence, <laughs> most of the time we think we're right and other people are wrong. Most of the time, we think our understanding of what's going on is correct. We just jump to that conclusion. I know people say, you know, oh, we're, we have low self-esteem and all that stuff. But most of the time, we think we're right. And, and how many of you have ever, ever realized, as you look back on something, you missed the boat on that one? Right? We have these blind spots. And so we need to listen at all levels to the word of God, however it comes to us, to expose these blind spots, to, to see our inconsistencies. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of the Lord is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, that's what we do in Lent. We're, we're opening all of who we are to the Word of God as it comes to us in Scripture and in, in other ways that His creation declares who He is. And we let that Word penetrate into our lives and expose what is there to the places where a part of us says, love one another, and another part of us looks down on the outcasts of society. There's a part of us that says, everything I have belongs to God. Of course it does. And then we hoard our time and our money for our own purposes. There's a part of us that says that verse, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. But then we get irritated when people treat us like we don't think we deserve. Right? Do you see the inconsistencies of us in the scripture? The word of God comes to us and exposes that. James writes, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And he has this image. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror 
And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. See, Scripture is this mirror that shows us who we are. It shows us these inconsistencies, these places where we're, we're talking a good talk, but what's actually happening in our life looks different. It shows us areas where we're called to obey. And since I brought that up, let me close with clarifying something about obedience. Obedience is for our good. And it's key to understand, if we're seeking to hear God, if we're seeking to, to find out what to obey, the question is, why? Why hear? Why obey? In, in a world that champions our, our independence and our self-determination, why should we seek to obey? And I think a lot of Christians have missed the boat because we think obedience is something we do to keep God happy. Something we do to keep Him from being angry at us. Something we do to avoid punishment. But obedience, which is what he's calling the people to all throughout the Old Testament. Obedience is about something way different than that. When he's frustrated with the Jews and their refusal to obey, it's not because he's on a power trip. It's not because he doesn't need them to obey to make him feel confident of his own power and his own authority. It's not like, you know, when, you, when your kids are little and you take them over to somebody else's house and, and you really want them to do well. You don't want them to break anything. And, and you, there's that little edge and you're on, you want them to obey because if, you don't want them to reflect poorly on you. It's not like God says you have to obey because if you don't, it makes me look like a loser God. That's not the situation, right? Obedience, God wants them to obey. He doesn't need anything out of it. He's actually doing it for their own good. Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Even James, after using the mirror analogy in in verse 25, says the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what? He does. We've got to stop seeing obedience to Jesus as God's way of controlling us. We've got to see that it's something he wants for our own good. And and when we disobey, you know what we're saying is that we know better than him, actually. When he says to forgive, if we refuse to forgive, it's because we just can't see how that's the best thing for us. When he says love your enemy and we refuse to do that, we just can't understand how that could make sense. And yet, That's the whole part of surrender. We trust what he says and not what we feel or think. When he says to serve or to lay down your life, in all those situations, we have to hear and then trust that obedience is actually the best for us. To admit that we don't know what's best for us, but that obedience is one of the ways God shows us what that is. He loves his children. He's not trying to control us so that it doesn't look bad for him. He wants us to obey because he knows that a life of disobedience will actually destroy us. So so the call this week is to look and to listen at all the ways God might be speaking to you. To let what he says expose us for who we really are and to point us in the direction of obedience for our own good. Will you look and listen this week? Will you learn from the Rechabite story? Well, you know, coming to the table helps us. This again is a story where he speaks to us. 
He uncovers our hesitancy to come to him or, or the motivations we have or the fears we carry. They're all exposed as we come to the table and say, we need what you have. Please let us partake. And he offers it freely. We're reminded that our obedience in coming to this table is actually for our own good. It's a table where, as a family, we share the life of God given to and for the world. Let's pray. God, it's a, it's a weird story to see these guys offered bowls of wine in the middle of the temple. And we just want to say, what, what's that? But we, we encounter those weird stories every day with the people we run into, with the times we get angry, with the, the, the feelings that seeing the frost on the mountains evokes. All day long you speak to us in a million different ways. And we just pray our hearts will be open to you as you speak. That you would expose the inconsistencies and the sin in us, the places where we run away from you. And, and do it in a way that draws us back to where we can obey and live in a way that brings life. Empower us to serve and to obey. Feed us here at your table. Make us more than what we are. As I was thinking this week about the, um, the images that God has used to speak to me, the, the, the visuals that God has said brought back to me over and over in my life. I remembered when I was a kid, I, I saw, um, I grew up in the southern United States, and I saw a raccoon trap that was really just a box, and it had a little hole in the top, and it had nails kind of pounded in at an angle, and inside the box were little rolled up balls of tin foil, aluminum foil. And I, I thought, how can that trap a raccoon? But raccoons like shiny things, and they'll reach in, and they'll grab the ball of aluminum foil, which makes a fist, and then they can't get out. And they'll get caught because they refuse to let go of the shiny thing. And I remember over the years reflecting on that thing, and how many times do I do that? I grab something, and I hold on to it because I think it's what I really want. And if I just would let it go, if I'd just be obedient to God... I'd be free. I could pull my hand right out. And, and so Lent is this time of us saying, what little shiny balls of foil are we holding on to that keep us enslaved when God's saying, let go and you'll be free. My prayer for you this week is Psalm 139 at the end. Search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.